recently uh, reading a magazine article about uh, different uh, celebrities who wrestle with anxiety disorders, and I was surprised at the long list. In fact, these are just some of the people, but I was surprised by the folks who who have anxiety because I, I, they just seem to have life together. I mean, they're wealthy, they're famous, you know, they're very, uh, they just seem to have it all together. So people like Oprah Winfrey, Stephen Colbert, Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, Jonah Hill, Kendall Jenner, Emma Stone, and Adele all wrestle with anxiety. It kind of surprised me because I, I look at them and I go, man, Adele, you're an amazing singer. I mean, you pack out the concert halls. People want to come hear you. You're so talented. Or Oprah Winfrey, whatever book you say read, people read it. I mean, you just seem to be like one of those people that have it all together. And yet they're filled with anxiety. It would seem like someone who's wealthy and famous and rich, you know, would, wouldn't be filled with anxiety. And yet they are. I guess we all wrestle with different worries at different times in our lives. What do you tend to worry about? What tends to make you anxious? You know, I was, uh, when I was my kid's age, I often had test anxiety. Anybody ever have test anxiety? Man, I hated that. You know, and my parents were teachers, right? So both of them were educators. So, so grades were important in my household. So I always did my homework. You know, I would study, but then as I would sit down to take the test, I get the sweaty palms. I start sweating and I'd be thinking to myself, what if they ask me a question I, I don't know the answer to? I mean, I did all the reading. I think I got it all, but what if they ask me about something? And I get, just get real, real worried. In fact, still today, uh, when my uh, daughter Hannah was taking her finals at a and M, I I prayed for her uh, diligently. And one night I had this recurring nightmare. I've been having it since I was in college. It was about my Spanish literature course. Uh, I have a minor in Spanish, hablo un poquito español. But uh, anyway, and actually I've been studying Spanish since the fifth grade. I studied Spanish fifth grade, took it in high school. I actually lived in Mexico for a while. I read uh, Spanish books on, on Mexican history, got to admire their culture and learn great things about it. But this last class for my minor was the Spanish literature course taught by Dr. Pablo Martinez. And everyone in the class except for me was a first-generation Mexican-American who grew up speaking Spanish in their home all the time. My parents studied French in high school. I have no idea why. No one in Texas speaks French, so I didn't learn Spanish from my parents. In fact, we did one of those DNA tests, and it turns out that I'm Scotch, Irish, Welsh. And we were able to trace our family history down to a guy named Andrew Bonaparte Griffin, who was born in Georgia in 1800. So we've been in this country a real, real long time. But my classmates were all first-generation Mexican-Americans. And Pablo Martinez was a pretty funny guy. He would open the class, and it was always in Spanish, never a word of English. And he would say some kind of joke in Spanish, and everyone would roar in laughter. And I'd kind of chuckle because, like, I don't know what he said, but I'm sure it was funny. I mean, he was, he was awesome. But all that to say, I remember uh, in that class, we would read these great works of Spanish literature. And we would talk about the different metaphors that we found in these works of literature or poetry or whatever. And we read authors like Isabella Allende, and we had to write these final papers and a final exam. And in my dream, this nightmare that I keep having, I sit down to take the test. And as I sit down to take the test, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, this, these questions are about books in Spanish I've never even read. And so I'm tra- quietly trying to translate the questions. My classmates are all leaving because they're done like that. And I'm thinking to myself, if I don't pass this test, I will fail this class. I will not get my minor, and I will not graduate. Talk about anxious, right? At least I'm not naked in the dream, right? I mean, <laughs> I was telling this story to my wife, Sarah, and she's like, are you naked? No, I'm not naked. That's kind of weird. But anyway, all that to say, I know other people have, those, have that dream, right? Like, oh, no, I'm taking it. Now I'm naked. Like, this is horrible. What haunts you? What worries do you tend to have? What things come to mind? Like, oh, are you worried about the, the war in Israel? I get this magazine. It's called World Magazine. It's kind of the news through a Christian perspective. And it's the news of the year, 2023. This is a rocket that Hamas is firing on Israel. 
You're worried about the war in Israel or the war in Ukraine. You know, when I read the news, I'm usually not too anxious when I start reading the news, but by the end, I'm always anxious. Anybody else can relate to that? Like, I'm not worried about the environment too much until I start to read about how the ice caps are melting, or I'm not worried about North Korea too much until I read about Kim Jong-un and his uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons. I'm not usually worried about immigration until I start to read the articles about how uh, the flood of immigrants is overwhelming our school system and our social welfare programs, and I can find myself becoming anxious pretty fast. How are we to respond to anxious times? What are we to do to help have faith in the midst of anxiety? As we continue our journey uh, by looking at the prominent people of the Bible, I want us to turn to a story about a a young shepherd boy, a teenage shepherd boy, who had faith when everyone else was filled with fear. You'll find it in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to begin with verse 12. Uh, But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much that we have this story written down that we might see how David, a man after your own heart, was able to have faith in the midst of anxiety. When everyone else was afraid, he was not. He was courageous. So I pray that true, the same would be true of us, and that as we read this familiar story, that you might speak afresh and anew to us, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. First Samuel chapter 17, beginning with verse 12, listen to God's word. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and third Shammah. David was the youngest. I want to pause there just for a moment. I think to put this in its historical, scriptural context, it's important to know that as we look at all of the Bible, the number seven is a number of wholeness. In fact, we know from Genesis chapter 1 that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. So it's kind of a number of wholeness and completeness. And if you read 1 Samuel 16, you'll see that, well, when God calls Sam, or, uh, yes, Samuel to anoint the next king of Israel from the sons of Jesse, he goes to Jesse's home and he says, could you bring me your sons before him? And of course, uh, Jesse uh, sends his seven oldest sons. And the first son he sees is Eliab. And, and Samuel thinks, oh, surely this is the one. But God says, no, I haven't chosen him. Don't look at his height. Don't look at his size. That's not the one I've chosen. And time and time again, he gets to the seventh son and God hasn't chosen any of these. And so Samuel says, are these all your sons? And Jesse's like, oh yeah, well, there's the youngest son, you know, the eighth son, the one who's outside of the number of wholeness and completeness. He, he, but he's out herding the sheep. He probably smells. You don't want to see him, do you? And we won't sit until he comes. And then David comes, the youngest son, the forgotten son probably in many ways. And he's the one that God chooses to be the next king of Israel. Yes, this teenage boy, David, was chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. What is it that makes David so special? To find out, let's keep reading the text. The three eldest eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. 
For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp and your, to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Now, again, just to put this in context, we've learned early in 1 Samuel 17 that, well, that Goliath, this giant man, if you translate the measurements from the Bible to our daily measurements, is about nine feet tall, incredible height, almost the size of a height of a basketball goal, nine feet tall. He had a body armor that weighed 200 pounds. The spearhead that he carried weighed 25 pounds. He was a giant of a man. And as it was common in ancient times, in order to avoid mass bloodshed, sometimes one army fighting against another army would say, well, let's put your best warrior against our best warrior. And then from this fight, this battle to the death, we'll determine who would win the war. And we read about this in 1 Samuel 17, verses 8 to 11. Listen to what it is that the giant Goliath is saying to the army of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me, if he's able to fight with me and kill me. Then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were filled with fear at the sight of the giant Goliath. You know, what's kind of ironic in this story is that the one person in Israel who probably was most suited to fight a giant like Goliath was King Saul. We read early in 1 Samuel that King Saul was actually a head taller than anyone else. He was the tallest soldier in Israel. He would have been, if anyone, the one to fight. And yet the Spirit of God had left King Saul because of his continual disobedience. If you read all of the stories of King Saul and King David, you'll see that King Saul, when he doesn't do what God asks him to do, gives an excuse or an explanation where King David gives a confession and seeks to repent. King Saul was a man of pride, and in his pride, the Spirit of God had left King Saul so that he was no... The Lord was no longer with King Saul, and Saul was led by fear rather than by faith. And the nation of Israel, the army of Israel, followed King Saul's example. As you continue to read our text, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, the giant, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches And will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. 
Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Can you imagine the scene? Young teenage short David saying, No, don't worry. I'll fight this guy. And, of course, tall King Saul is like, What? And so the response is, And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go up with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the host, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistine as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. I want to look again at verse 26 of our text. Notice again what David says. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for this man who kills this Philistine? 
and takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Notice that David is, is driven not by national pride, but rather theological pride. It's because this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine, again, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant people. And so if you were uncircumcised, it meant that you were not a part of God's covenant people. You did not worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here is this uncircumcised Philistine who is, who is defying the armies of the living God. David is offended for God because he has a theological pride. He loves God. It reminds me of what God says to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let the man boast that he knows the Lord. David knew the Lord. He knew the Lord well. In fact, we're told that 73 of the 150 Psalms that are written in the Psalter, which is the great prayer book of the Bible, were written by David that speak of David's personal relationship that he has with God as he talks to God regularly. Probably the most famous of the Psalms is Psalm 23. I'd like to look at that again briefly, just the first few verses of it where we read, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice the use of the personal pronoun my and me here. David has a very personal relationship with God. The Lord is my shepherd. He's not just the shepherd of the nation of Israel. Of course, the Lord is the shepherd of the nation of Israel. But David has such an intimate relationship with God that, well, that he says he's my shepherd. He leads me down uh, to the green pastures along the still waters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For our God, my God, is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Do we have that kind of personal relationship with our God today? David did. David is declared to be a man after God's own heart. How is it that David has this intimate relationship with God and, and King Saul and the rest of Israel's army did not? Well, if you think about David's life and how he spent most of his time, as a young shepherd boy, he spent most of his time out in the midst of God's beautiful creation, herding sheep, watching sheep, protecting sheep, leading sheep. You know, as we think about the characters we've looked at so far in the Old Testament, prominent characters of the Bible, men who had a significant impact in the work of God's kingdom. We look at Father Abraham a couple weeks ago. We looked at Moses last week, and today we look at King David. And all three men were shepherds. I don't think that's just a coincidence. There's something about spending time in the midst of God's beautiful creation, listening to God, talking with God, solitude and silence, opportunities to, to be still and to know that our God is God. And that he is in control. Notice in our text when David makes his plea about what he's going to do, Saul is like, you're too young to do this. And listen to David's response again as we find it in verse 33. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father 
And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David remembered how God had faithfully delivered him in the past, and he trusted that God would do it again. In fact, as you read through many of the Psalms, you'll see that many of them have phrases of praise because David's prayers were not just filled with supplication, asking God for something, but praising God, thanking God for his faithfulness in the past. This last Wednesday, many of us began a new study on Tim Keller's book, which I left upstairs. But it's Tim Keller's book on prayer. I think we have to cover the book. It's not too late to join us. If you'd like to, notice the title. Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Prayer, Experiencing uh, Awe and Intimacy with God. And Keller points out in this great book, and we're just on chapter 2, so you can join us this week if you want in the parlor, 630 to 7.30. Uh, We'd love to have you. He points out that prayer is really about growing in our relationship with God. Sometimes we approach prayer as if it's about getting what we can get from God. Treating God as if he's a vending machine. But really, it's about having conversation with God, communing with God, listening to God, talking to God, thanking God. In fact, Keller points out that if we will use the Lord's Prayer as kind of the model prayer, most of our prayers should really begin with adoration because that's what the Lord's Prayer begins with. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be glorified and praised. And as we adore God for who God is, we we can't help but thank God for what God has already done for us. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. As Paul is in a prison cell, and the church in Philippi is beginning to experience persecution for the first time. And Paul, again, is in a prison cell. He's not sure if he's going to get out. He hopes he does. He can see how his imprisonment has helped further the gospel. He has a very positive attitude about it all, but he doesn't know for sure. And despite his persecution, his imprisonment, and despite the challenges that the church in Philippi is facing, he writes these words in Philippians 4 to 6. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but on everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How good are we at making sure that in our prayers we are offering prayers of thanksgiving and adoration before we move to supplication. I believe David had the faith to see that the battle is the Lord's because David was in constant communion with God. And as he talked to God, he he adored God. He thanked God for all that God had already done for him. He recognized that the Lord was his shepherd. The Lord had taken him through the valley of the shadow of death. And so he doesn't have to fear evil, that God had been with him when he fought the lions and when he fought the bears. He knew that God would be with him again as he fought this giant Goliath a man that intimidated everyone else, but through the eyes of faith, David could see that the battle is the Lord's. The same is true for you and me today. The battle is the Lord's. All of this creation is in His loving hands, even when the world might seem to be at its darkest. We know that God is in control. How do we know that? Well, if you've been with us going through the journey of... um, uh, the 5 by 5 program, you know, we've been reading through Mark one chapter a day, five days a week. And we're now in Mark 15 last Friday. Tomorrow is Mark 16. And in Mark 15, we read the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
how darkness came over the land and all hope seemed to be lost because this wonderful teacher and prophet and man who was the son of God had been healing everyone else and doing remarkable miracles, feeding 5,000 with just five barley loaves and two fish. He was the one who had walked on water and he had healed every disease and cast out demons and he seemed to be the Messiah, the one, and yet he hung helplessly on a cross, dying for the sins of the world. And darkness came over the land and all hope seemed to be lost. But it was only Friday. Sunday was coming. Yes, as we read tomorrow, as we read Mark 16, we're going to read the good news that Jesus lives, that on the third day he rose from the dead and he conquered both sin and death on our behalf so that we know with full assurance that in Jesus Christ we have eternal life as we give our life to him, that in Jesus Christ we have a a new life and that in Jesus Christ nothing can separate us from the unconditional, sacrificial, eternal love of God, that God is with us. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have to fear no evil For our God is with us. In Jesus, we see that, and we know that to be true. So, my friends, the next time we become anxious reading the news, let's adore God and thank God for the fact that he has been so faithful to deliver us in the past. Let's give these concerns to God and ask him to do it again, knowing that the battle is the Lord's. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you that as we turn to this familiar story of this shepherd boy, teenage boy, David, who had faith when everyone else had fear. We know that from his psalms that he was a man who, a young man, who had an intimate relationship with you, who spoke to you regularly, who spent time in solitude and silence and prayer, just as Jesus did. For as we've been reading through Mark, we can see that before launching his ministry, his public ministry, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus went to a mountaintop to pray. And on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane by himself to pray to our Heavenly Father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. So we pray that same prayer as well, knowing that your will is the best thing for us, that you are a God who has always cared for us and loved us, that we were created in the very image of you, O Lord, and that you have provided for all of our needs in Christ Jesus. So we do not live by fear, but by faith, knowing, as David knew, that the battle is the Lord's. Oh, God, may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.